Welcome to Protecting Your Assets, the show about protecting people, property, and most importantly, protecting your ass. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano, and I'd like you to join me for a fast-paced and often fiery discussion about security issues with my co-host, Brian the Angry Man Claimant. Whether we're piercing the veil of security, talking your duty of care, or raving about the latest technology, we'll share our thoughts on the issues, the trends that are impacting security today and into the future. So grab a coffee and join us for our latest podcast, and don't forget to like and follow us on our sponsor's website, brianclayman.com. And now, let's talk about protecting your assets. Hello, folks, and welcome to Protecting Your Assets. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano Cedroni, and with me is my co-host, Brian the Angry Man Clayman. Today's podcast, we're going to be talking about terrorism. Yes, terrorism. It's still ticking. hasn't gone away, uh, despite COVID's best efforts to, to, keep, to hog all the, the headlines. Um, and with that, we're going to be talking with one of Canada's own experts in the field, Phil Gursky. He is the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting Limited and Program Director for the Security, Economics, and Technology Hub at the University of Ottawa's Professional Development Institute. He worked as a Senior Strategic Analyst at CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, from 2001 to 2015, specializing in violent Islamist-inspired homegrown terrorism and radicalization. From 1983 to 2001, he was employed as a Senior Multilingual Analyst at the Communications Security Establishment, also known as CSC, where he specialized in the Middle East. He also served as a senior special advisor in the National Security Directorate at Public Safety Canada, focused on community outreach and training on radicalization to violence until his retirement from the civil service in uh, May of 2015. Mr. Gursky has presented on violent Islamist-inspired and other forms of terrorism and radicalization across Canada and the world. He is the author of a number of books, including The Threat from Within, Recognizing Al-Qaeda-Inspired Radicalization and Terrorism in the West, Western Foreign Fighters, The Threat to Homeland and International Security, The Lesser Jihads, Taking the Islamist Fight to the World, An End to the War on Terrorism When Religion Kills, How Extremism Justifies Violence Through Faith, and the last one is called The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present. We're going to talk about that as we get into this podcast. He has a regular blog on Today in Terrorism and a Terrorism Weekly Recap, along with his podcast called Canadian Intelligence A, and those are all available on his website. And he tweets at Borealis Saves. He is an associate fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism in the Netherlands, a digital fellow at the Montreal Institute for Genocide Studies at Concordia, and a member of the board of the National Capital Branch of the CIC, also known as the Canadian International Council, and an affiliate of the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security, and Society. Holy, that's a lot of credentials and experience, Phil, and... Uh, it's going to be great talking to you today about terrorism. Um, again, something I think that's gone off the radar, but uh, has been steadily ticking along as we're going to find out um, as we get into this. Hey, Phil, oh, welcome to the uh, Protecting Your Assets podcast. We'd like to do a little series uh, or segment to start off our podcast. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Brian to say hello to the audience and uh, see what's keeping you up these days. Hi, everyone. And it's great to have Phil with us today, and we'll uh, introduce him a bit more formally uh, shortly. What's keeping me up is still, surprise, surprise, the COVID topic and the vaccine rollout seems to be uh, working a bit smoothly uh, or smoother now, now that the Americans have uh, saved our bacon and they're dumping some pharmaceutical vaccines into Canada. It just amazes me. It continues to amaze me how a government has screwed this up from beginning to end. You would think in terms of the registration portal, we've only had, what, about a year? to plan yeah. for this. I mean, we knew this was coming. You thought they would have built the uh, infrastructure over the last year. You think they would have tested it. But no, it just seems like we're, we're building it as we go on the fly. There is light at the end of the tunnel. I'm a little bit optimistic more now than I was before. But it's just amazing how uh, if you want to screw something up, give it to government. That's it. <laughs> you know, I'm not even going to get into it again because I'm sick and tired of talking about COVID. I'm going to go right over to our to our guest, Phil, uh, to talk about what's on everyone's mind, I think. Uh, or, or you know what? It was on everyone's mind certainly a year ago. It was in the in the news almost every day. It seems to have disappeared. You'd think that mm -hmm. there's none of, the, none of it going on anymore, and that really is terrorism and, mm -hmm. and terrorist attacks around mm -hmm. the world. So What's keeping you up at night these days, uh, Phil, and uh, specifically regarding terrorism? You know, what's uh, what's the latest and greatest on, on that? 
Well, I was going to say, is my prostate keep me up at night? But I'm not sure everyone needs to hear that. <laughs> um, I'm at that certain age now. It's a, you know, it's a great question, and I think we've all become so inundated with COVID this and COVID that, and for obvious reasons, as, as Brian said. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. I mean, you know, we haven't had this happen in really in our in our area of the world for a century since the Spanish flu of 1919 in the aftermath of the First World War. You know, there's SARS and there's all kinds of other, or MERS and all kinds of other viruses that came out, but it didn't really affect us here to the same extent. SARS was kind of big in the mid-2000s, but yeah. Interestingly, what we did find uh, on a terrorism front is two things. First of all, despite the fact that we in the West, and I use West writ large, really haven't been affected by terrorism in the past year. In fact, I'm struggling to come up with a single the exception of a beheading of a teacher in France last fall, I'm struggling to come up with a single large attack, significant attack in the West yeah. over the past year. And this is despite all kinds of warnings that uh, all kinds of people were getting sick and tired of, of, of COVID and that they were going to take advantage of the mm-hmm. disruption, the fact that our attentions are elsewhere, the fact that in many cases law enforcement wasn't at full capacity because people were taking time off because they were sick or they wanted to minimize you know, the social distancing. It'd be, a, it'd be a great opportunity to, to do something, launch an attack. We had ISIS threatening all kinds of stuff, and yet nothing has really happened in the West. That, that's the first finding. The second finding is that everywhere else, it's business as normal. I mean, there's an attack in Somalia a week. There's an attack in Nigeria a week. There's an attack every day in Iraq and Syria. There's an attack every five minutes in Afghanistan by all the usual actors. Mm-hmm. The Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram. And in fact, there have been movements that have kind of arisen from, not from nowhere, but out of mostly insignificance. There's a, there's a group in Mozambique, which calls us a variety of names. One of which is Al-Shabaab, no relation to Al-Shabaab in Somalia, which has become part of what's called Islamic State Central African Province. And they're beheading people. They're beheading people in northern Mozambique. And, and people first say, well, where the hell is Mozambique? Secondly, why do I care? And yet what this demonstrates is that despite this incredible softening or uh, decrease in terrorism in the rest in the west as we call it it's business as usual elsewhere and and, and you know if, if you follow terrorism like i do on a daily basis by reading the news of outside of europe as a canadian if you go past the national post globe mail and the i don't know new york times you don't hear about this stuff and yet local news is reporting this on a daily basis i find that you know, I, I did I did a summary for for two months just to see where the, where terrorism was happening, just out of curiosity. And there were dozens and dozens of attacks a week around the world, just not in our backyards, yeah. which makes people to say, well, is it really a problem anymore? We're you know we're kind of at the 20th anniversary of 9/11 this fall, and I think people are kind of saying, oh, I've been there, done that, I've got the t-shirt, let's move on. And yet it's not gone away. Yeah, no, that's a good point because just because there have not been any attacks, just like. We had SARS. SARS changed, I think, the way we in Ontario anyways saw public health. And I thought, many people thought, that we've learned some hard lessons. We will not get caught off guard again. And for several years, we built capacity. And then it just ended. We got hit with COVID. And there was no capacity. We weren't prepared. 9-11, from a policing and emergency response point of view, uh, Canada implemented, said, hey, if we had an attack like the Americans had, if we lost uh, big towers, do we have the wherewithal to respond? And we created these HUSAR units, Heavy Urban Search and Rescue, which were yeah. combined police, fire, uh, EMS. Yeah. And there were about five or six of them strategically around Canada. And they were very, very effective. And they were as good as any in the world. And they were funded by money. But then government decided a few years ago, terrorism is no longer a problem. Yeah. And they stopped funding it. And they disbanded it. So to, to get back to what you said, the fact that it's been relatively quiet in the West, does that mean life is good and we can think about other things? Or we always have to think. It's always something we're going to have to worry about. Well, the bottom line, Brian, is that terrorism has been around as long as humans have been around. So, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you we're going to get another 9-11 tomorrow or next week, something on that scale. But the, as a tactic, as a thing that people and groups use to get their point across, it's never going to go away. And let me give you a really, really good example. Under the previous U.S. administration, under, under President Trump, he announced sometime in late 19, or 2019 that ISIS was dead. Islamic State was dead. Uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was captured, he was killed. And the group's uh, so-called caliphate was whittled down to essentially nothing. So, it, you know, it, it, it kind of had its height in 2014, and then it was kind of decreasing and diminishing in size ever since that time, to the point where the president said, ISIS has been defeated. 
Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, we can wipe our hands, and you know, pat each other on the back, and we can go home. ISIS is probably stronger today than it was in 2014. And by, by that, I mean, it doesn't have the caliphate back anymore. But it has spawned a number of affiliates, uh, largely for Af through Africa and Asia, that are extremely effective. One could argue that, you know, I talked about Islamic State in Mozambique. There's an Islamic State Western African province that's rivaling Boko Haram for, for domination in that country. In fact, the two are, are kind of one right now. There's an Islamic State in the Greater Sahara. There's an Islamic State in the Sinai. There's an Islamic State in Yemen. Islamic State in Afghanistan. And and a lot of people, in like in our neck of the woods, like Kent, in the last couple of years, um, when they're arrested, they say that they're ISIS-inspired. We had an attack at Edmonton in the fall of 2018, which a guy had a nice flag on the dashboard of his car when he hit a cop. So it's kind of like... We're incapable of doing two things at the same time in the West. <laughs> That's so true. So, yes. so it's all, all COVID all the time, which means terrorism doesn't matter. And, and that's, <clears throat> I think, the, the mistake we make at, as Westerners is our attention spans are very, very limited. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it just it kind of falls off the radar and nobody cares. So thankfully, we've got people who pay attention to this stuff. I'm, I'm talking about CISOs. I'm talking about the RCMP, uh, National mm -hmm. Defense, where they're deployed. Because it hasn't gone away, and it isn't, it isn't going to go away. Again, I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm, I'm not going to say we're going to have the same level of deaths next year that we had last year. And in fact, the uh, Global Terrorism Index, which comes out every year in December, pushed out by a, an Australian think tank called the um, Institute for Economics and Peace, has been documenting a, a steady decline in deaths since 2014, from about 18,000 to about 14,000 last year. So, again, a good sign, but still, last year, 14,000 people died in acts of terrorism around the world. Do the math. What's that? Uh, four, five, 50 a day? It's still pretty significant. Bill, I want to take a quick step back for the audience that may not be familiar with right. terrorism. Because I think part of the problem with, with Canadians certainly is they use terrorism on everything, right? The Manassian going down Young Street, yeah. that was terrorism. Well, it, there's a difference between terrorism tactics yeah. and actually a terrorist group. So can you give us some uh, of your thoughts on what really constitutes terrorism yeah. in this country? Yeah. So ha having worked for, for CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, I mean, we're bound by the criminal code. And the criminal code states quite categorically in Section 83.01 that terrorism is a serious act of violence, either planned or executed, for political, ideological, or religious motivations or rationales. That's what the criminal code says. Now, we could argue what constitutes politics. We can argue what constitutes ideology. We can argue what constitutes religion. But that's what the code says. Now, it's a, it gets a little more complicated in that in a different part of the criminal code, there's a provision for what's called a hate crime. Now, a hate crime is when you commit an act, usually a violent act, and you do so because you're targeting a specific group based on gender, age, ethnicity, you know, sexual orientation, the list goes on and on and on and on. And the way that I like to explain it is that all terrorism is hate, but not all hate is terrorism. So you can target somebody because of their gender and have nothing to do with terrorism. And I would argue, you mentioned Manassian, Luke, and this is a really good example. Manassian was not a terrorist. It's, it's, not, even, it's not even certain he was an incel, the so-called involuntary celibate. I actually pointed that out. He made up a lot of stuff to make himself sound more important. So I think at a maximum, Manassian was a hate criminal. More likely, he was just a mass murderer. And we know from the trial, he was actually, he hoped to become the greatest mass murderer in history. If you want to set a record, that is not necessarily linked to terrorism. So, you know, even if you were an insult, is that an ideology? I don't know. It sure as heck isn't a religion. It sure as heck isn't a political system. So despite the fact that we have a, a code that outlines what the term means, the argument doesn't stop there. And, and just to one last thing, just how complicated it can get, there's actually about 200 definitions of terrorism around the world. And these are in criminal codes, statutes, et cetera, et cetera. And so one, one country's uh, terrorism charges is another country's something else. So it really is a hard thing to nail down in terms of what it means and what it doesn't mean. And then, of course, you just got, po you got popular expressions. You know, I felt terrorized, and therefore I have to back to terrorism. It doesn't work that way. St snakes terrorize people. Sharks terrorize people. Does the label really matter? So, for example, dead is dead. So if I'm killed by Manassian mowing me down the street or by someone that says they're affiliated with ISIS, 
and he cuts my head off. I'm still dead. So is the definition important because it says if it's terrorism, it ceases that looks at it. And if it's a mass murderer, it's the York Regional Police that look at it. Is that where the definitions come in or is it deeper than that? It's interesting you ask that, Brian, because from the criminal code's perspective, my understanding, and I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a judge. My understanding is that charging someone with terrorism is no different than charging them with first-degree murder or conspiracy to commit murder. So if in Canada the penalty for murder is 10 years, the penalty for terrorist murder is 10 years. It's actually, if you know, from the Crown's perspective, from the prosecution's perspective in Canada, it makes a lot more sense to charge someone with a hate crime. Because under the provisions of the criminal code, you know, if murder is 10 years and, and, and you can demonstrate that the person killed out of a motive for hate, the judge actually has the um, latitude to increase the sentence. Mm-hmm. So if you kill somebody, it's 10 years. If you kill somebody because they're black or gay or whatever, then it's 15 years. So I, I think that the, the terrorism label is a very emotional one. Uh, I mean, obviously, we, you know, we, we're still living in the post 9-11 period. But nobody gave a rat's posterior about terrorism before 9-11. Yeah. It's been around for a long – nobody cared. Mm-hmm. It's something that happened over there. You know, the PLO did it or mm-hmm. whatever. Nobody cared about this as a term. It was brought to our attention because almost 3,000 people died on the same day and you know, on that sunny Tuesday morning in September in 2001. So I, I do think the term gets an awful lot of attention that it probably doesn't deserve. Uh, it is what it is, uh, and it certainly has its its peaks and its troughs. Again, you know, Manassian, a good, the, the attacks on the Capitol building in January mm-hmm. this year, terrorism mm-hmm. or not terrorism? Well, it actually, it's a lot more complicated than that because you had such a, a diverse section of actors that showed up that day, all the way, all the, all the way from people who just were out for a good time. I, I, I call it a frat party gone wrong to people who may, in fact, have had an ideological bent to their, their acts of violence. So, yeah, some could be classified as terrorists, but not all 300 or 3,000 or how, how many there were that day. That was not an act of terrorism. That was many acts of violence perpetrated by many individuals for many different reasons. When you see what's happening south of the border with the new terrorism, a.k.a. white supremacists, the white supremacists, uh, Antifa, that whole genre of non-Islamic terrorism, is that a real problem? And how different or similar is Canada to the U.S.? Well, it's a great question. It's one I've been arguing an awful lot about ever since the Capitol and even before that. Again, if you go back to a global scale, let's start globally, then we'll bring it down to North America. On a global scale, every year, out of all the acts of terrorism that have been qualified as terrorism or can be classified as terrorism, 99.9% are carried out by Islamist extremists. 99%. 99%. The rest are a hodgepodge of Hindu terrorists in India and Buddhist terrorists in Myanmar, which should be an oxymoron, but it's not, uh, you know, Jewish terrorists in the West Bank against Palestinians, yada, yada, yada. Here in North America, you could certainly argue that in the 21st, or 20th century, well, 21st century, let's stick with that. In terms of Canada, we've had a grand total of eight deaths from terrorism two of which were at the hands of Islamist extremists. Of course, this was Martin Zahap Yibou on Parliament Hill, October 22nd, 2014. And two uh, days previously, Martin Kutu killed a warrant officer in his car. They were both Islamists. They were both ISIS wannabes. They wanted to leave the country. They were told they couldn't. They said, fine, we'll just do it here. So that's two. In January 2017, Alexandre Bissonnet in a mosque in Quebec City, again, not charged with terrorism under the criminal code. He was charged with first-degree murder for which he pleaded guilty. But most people would say, yeah, probably an act of right-wing terrorism. It, you know, at a minimum, it was a hate crime because he certainly targeted the mosques because of who they were, because they were Muslims at prayer. So he would say, well, you know, right-wing extremism, right-wing terrorism outweighs Canada by three to one, six deaths versus two. The problem with that is it ignores the fact that we stopped a whole series of incidents that would have killed hundreds, if not thousands. I'm talking Toronto 18. I'm talking the Via Passenger plot uh, in 2013. I'm talking the Samosa plot in Trenton in 2010. Uh, the list goes on and on. And, and, and all the injuries, the, the attack in Edmonton, the attack in a Canadian Tire uh, in Toronto, the attack at a recruiting center in Markham. Yep. So there have been a number of attacks where no one's died, but people have been wounded. And there have been a whole bunch of attacks that have been thwarted, which would have saved hundreds if not thousands of lives. When you take those facts into consideration, it's pretty hard to conclude that Islamist terrorism is not the number one threat to Canada. But, you know, as I as I point out in my new book, I mean, I walk through all the attacks from Confederation to the present, and it's a real dog's breakfast. It's like Canada is. We've had Sikh terrorists in this country, right? Yeah. 
we've had um, Irish terrorists. My God, the first act of terrorism in Canadian history took place before we were a year old. Well, in April of 1868, where Thomas Darcy McGee was assassinated by a Fenian, who's an Irish terrorist. Yes. We had Armenian terrorism in Ottawa in the early 80s. I was here for both attacks against Turkish diplomats in the 1980s in Ottawa. So we've had a real wide swath of different types of terrorism. But in terms of activity, there's no question that for the past 20 years, I would argue the past 25 years, the chief actors have been Islamist terrorists. And you go back to Ahmed Rassam's attempt to go into Los Angeles in, in you know, December of, of 1999, then the Toronto 18, and all the foreign fighters that fought with ISIS. We had people from Ottawa, people from Timmins, Ontario, died fighting for ISIS. Yes. People forget about those things. So it's a very long answer to a very short question, Brian, but the bottom line is that if you're trying to measure the impact, the real impact of who these actors are, what they believe, and what they're trying to achieve, Islamist terrorism still dominates here in Canada. Now, interestingly, in the States, you could make an argument that the right wing is, is as powerful, if not more, than Islamist terrorists. You know, we've had a lot of, they have a lot more right wing actors than we do. And they're a lot more powerful in, in, in main part because, because of the gun laws in the States, where anybody can get an AR-15 and walk into a store. And we see that all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So I think from a, from a North American perspective, I still think Canada has to worry most about Islamist terrorism, although I, I can't tell you off the top of my head, having left CSIS in 2015, how many investigations are ongoing. When I was there, it was all Islamist terrorism all the time. In the States, I imagine the FBI is equally divided between looking at jihadis and looking at the far right. Outside of, of North America, it's still all Islamist extremism all the time. Look what's happening in Germany. You, you know, the accounts of right-wing extremists in the German army not, notwithstanding. You look in France, you look in Spain, you look in the United Kingdom, you look in Belgium. I have, you know, contacts still there who work in this business. And yet it, it's all jihadis all the time over there still. So it's not, it hasn't been usurped by the right wing. It's interesting what you said earlier that of all the investigations that Canadian uh, security officials have done over the years, Toronto 18, the Edmonton, the the, the Ottawa attacks and all the other ones, uh, there was the Via Rail, as you said, and a whole bunch that never came to fruition. And it's almost as if you're sometimes the victim of your own success yeah. because yeah. police and intelligence have done such a great job keeping us safe. We as Canadians believe this is not a Canadian problem. It's an African problem. It's an American yeah. problem. It's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy going in the wrong direction. You know, uh, a friend of ours says, from the security point of view, and especially where Luke and I live, nothing like a good terror attack to get you the budget you need oh, God, to do yeah. your job. And I guess it's the same in the public sector with what you're doing at CSIS. I yeah. think there's been a lot of redeployment in the last several years of police officers that were looking at terrorism and CSIS yeah. guys now looking at other things. Not because the threats have gone away, but we have limited resources. You're absolutely right. I mean, look at look at the mass redeployment after 9-11. I mean, you had agencies in Canada that were poning up for money to do counterterrorism. You had fisheries and oceans, for God's sakes, asking for counterterrorism money in the wake of, of 9-11. And the same thing happened in the States. I mean, every every town was all of a sudden begging for money to protect. I remember this, like there was some kind of festival in New Hampshire that said we're a prime target for terrorism. No, you're not. But they got money for it because of the aftermath of the attack. You know, there's two other things that need need to be said. First of all, you're right about the successes. There are amazing successes. A lot of a lot of man hours and woman hours go into this stuff. There's there's, there's surveillance. There's 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 warrants to instant communications. There's liaison with domestic and foreign partners. There's source recruitment, source handling, all that kind of stuff. And as a result, nothing happened. But as you said, nothing happened. And the thing is, in, in, in the security world, the only time people notice is when, it, when, it, when, it, when something goes wrong. In other failure. words, yeah. you are only as good as your last failure. Nobody cares when you get it right. In fact, they disbelieve you. And I remember in the aftermath of Toronto 18, the incredulousness of most Canadians. These guys were terrorists? They could organize a piss up in a bar. These guys were useless. Like, how can you write? Look at these guys. They're they're incompetent. They're a bunch of young morons. And I I kept saying, uh, there's a lot more to this than you actually think. So you're only as good as your last failure. The other thing, of course, is that when you look at security intelligence, so when I used to work at CSIS, counterterrorism is one of three main mandates. The other two are counterintelligence, i.e. counterespionage, and counterproliferation. They need resources, too. Right. And we've seen over the last couple of years, especially, you know, Russian interference in Canada, mm-hmm. Chinese interference in Canada, harassing members of the Uyghur community, the Tibetan community, the Falun Gong are being harassed in Canada by Chinese. We've got um, um, 
theft of Canadian technology. We go, we go, go back to, to Nortel. Why, why do they think Nortel yes. fell? Yeah. Because all the technology was stolen by the Chinese. So when you work for these organizations, you're constantly juggling which priority means the most today. And, and there has been a shift, and I know this because I still have sources, a shift away from counterterrorism into counterintelligence. So I'm not going to say that's the wrong thing to do, but the other thing that people don't realize is that your resources are finite. Yeah. Yeah. You've only got a, you've got a set number of resources, and you have to decide on a probably weekly or monthly basis, where do I deploy those resources? And you may decide, I'm going to move them from A to B. But moving them from A to B is like robbing Peter to pay Paul. Because the fewer resources you have on A means you can't do as good a job on A. And then what if A blows up tomorrow? What if something major happens? Then you redeploy from B to A. And then B blows up a week later. You know, we made out like bandits after 9-11. Every organization that did counterterrorism got a ton of money and a ton of resources. The, so at CSIS, for example, they have what are called uh, intelligence officer entry training courses. These are the courses that train the actual operators. And historically, it was one or two classes a year. After 9-11, it was four to five classes a year. So they expanded. I mean, CSIS was actually losing resources on 9-11. It was down to about 1,900 people from a high of about 2,700 earlier. CSIS is now somewhere around 3,600 people. I, again, it's, I'm ballparking this. CSE, so Communications Security Establishment, where I used to work before CSIS, was we were about 900 strong when I left CSC for CSIS. CSE is now over 3,000. And and CSE got a counterterrorism mandate it never had. When I worked at CSE, we didn't do counterterrorism. It wasn't a priority. We were strictly a foreign intelligence organization. 9-11 hit, CSE got a counterintelligence mandate, in addition to the cyber mandate it has now. So things do change, but it's it's constantly a challenge of, I've got this this tank of resources. Where am I going to deploy them, mm-hmm. and and for how long? Can I can I ask um, Phil? Like from the sounds of it, you know the government does what it can, but from you know where Brian and I have sat in some of those briefings, and you know we're not getting into any uh, privacy things that we don't want to let out there. But in general terms, I, I sensed a lot of frustration from the CSIS. And, you know, even federal RCMP agents, guys who deal with those, that level of um, criminal activity, terrorism, whatever you want to call it, at that level, trying to get traction uh, yeah. with the federal government. Is that actually what's happening? Or do you think our government's doing a pretty good job, given their resources, to navigate the waters as best they can? And, you know, I'll throw out there some of the examples. You talk about China. I mean, if we're not, if we don't have a counterterrorism game or intelligence game up now, that this is what we need them, like what we're dealing with the two Michaels and the things that are going yeah. on there, draws out of the Middle East, what's going to happen to our intelligence capabilities in those areas. Is Canada, the government, respectful of the experts? You guys, you, you know, your former bosses, you guys know what's going on. You try to tell them that's your job to advise them. But are they really listening, do you think, or are they sort of tiptoeing around it and trying to ignore it if they can? Categorically, they're not. Now, there are exceptions. We have some great customers who got it. They understood the benefits of intelligence and the strengths that understood that intelligence could help them make better decisions. But by far, the vast majority of government officials either don't care about intelligence or dismiss it as unimportant. And, and, I'll, and I'll give you a concrete example. Prior to the Toronto 18, uh, I was working an awful lot on understanding the mindset of why Canadians thought these, these types of things were a good idea. We call it radicalization of violence. It's a terrible term, but it's a term we got. I would present regularly to government officials you know, senior officials, what we were seeing, what it meant. And I would get like blank stares back. And I'd say, okay, what about, what is it about that you don't understand? You know, we we're showing you, this is what our investigations are showing. We're finding people are doing X, Y, or Z, and we're worried about the possibility of violence. Some would just say, well, yeah, well, your intelligence is wrong. Or, you know what, it's not really yeah. important. Or, you know what, um, we don't care. We think you're making this stuff up because, you know, we think you want more money and resources. It's nothing like a, you know, causing a panic to get the government's attention, right? But it's not just terrorism. I mean, look at the look at the Trudeau government's policy on China. Like, seriously? Like, when are you going to take seriously that China is harassing? In fact, I have a podcast that's coming out soon where I interview the head of the Uyghur Canadian Association. And the stories he tells about the harassment he's getting from China, threats being made to his family back home, he doesn't shut his, shut his trap about, you know, Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs in East Turkestan. Chinese set of our set of our technology, Russian attempts to hack our systems. It almost seems like there is um, either a wanton disregard for threats, or they're just not bright enough to get it. 
And, you know, I know they're always competing interests. Well, if we piss off China, they're going to, you know, blockade us or saying Australia, you know, told China to piss off. And yeah, they got, they got hit hard. But Australia says, well, we're protecting our interests here. We're not going to, you're not going to kowtow to the Chinese because, because they want us to. I think that, that in general, Canadian officials have no appreciation for intelligence. And I've been arguing for 40 years now. I joined CSE in 83. I've been arguing for 40 years now that we have a very poor analysis and intelligence culture in this country, which you do not see in the United States or United Kingdom. They understand intelligence. They understand what it's, what it can do. They understand what it can't do. And, and therefore they leverage it, you know, the way they should. But here in Canada, there really is very little appreciation for what intelligence can do. And this is why, you know, um, even in our, in our media, uh, a lot of the people that are, are, are extolled as experts and specialists couldn't spell intelligence. Uh, and yet because they, you know, teach it or whatever, it, it, all of a sudden they're the ones to listen to. And part of that's because there are very few people who used to work in intelligence who go to the media. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a rarity in this country, but there's just a, there's just a complete ignorance uh, of what intelligence can do for you. And, and just, people just don't seem to care. I'm going to say, I know Brian's got a question, but I just want to add one quick point. First of all, great to have people like you in the media engaging the public because we need them to educate them. To your point, people need to understand it, and it's, they're only going to get that by, by people like yourself sharing your expertise with them. The other question I had, just to follow up on, on what you just said, do you think that our current approach to, to intelligence terrorism will put in jeopardy our participation with the Five Eyes? Because all those other guys have already written off China. We're the only ones yeah. still sitting on the fence. No, it's a great point. I think the answer is a, a very strong strong yes. We've seen that for 5G example, right? I mean, Canada really dragged its feet on 5G, saying that they weren't going to uh, uh, expel Huawei from providing 5G in this country. I mean, look at Huawei even sponsors Hockney Canada, for God's sakes. Yeah. I mean, how more Canadian can you get? You know, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist at the best of times, but you really begin to wonder, what is it about this relationship that makes the current government so reluctant to call the Chinese out? Is someone making a buck off this or is someone compromised in, in some way that they're not willing to do something? You're right. The other four eyes, so the Aussies, the Kiwis, the Americans, and the Brits have said categorically, we will not allow Huawei in our, in our 5G system. And Canada's still dithering. And for, for, for no comprehensible reason because if our allies that are that strong are saying this why aren't we following now you don't know i mean there's always there's some differences sometimes even in the, in the five eyes i remember when they when the kiwis were almost punted up because they wouldn't allow american ships that may or may not be carrying nuclear weapons to dock in new zealand it was a real contentious bilateral issue back in the late 80s but on this one they're seeing this is a no-brainer uh first of all we could help canadian companies by allowing them to develop and run a 5G or, you know, allies like the Finns, like Nokia, we can bring them in or, or Ericsson, the Swedes could come in. But to, you know, to, to basically put all our, our eggs in the, in the Huawei basket makes no sense to me. And I think, Luke, I think you, you know, asked a question. I think it's very real. Certainly under Trump, uh, there was a, there was some talk about cutting Canada off if they didn't make a decision on 5G. Under Biden, uh, probably a little more subtle. But I'm sure there's lots of conversations going on at the highest level saying, you guys will do this. And if you don't, you can forget about our, our relationship. Well, you know, I just want to pick up on what you said when we we're talking about the Chinese-Canadian relationship. And you said, you know, you wonder, you said you're not a conspiracy theorist, but is someone getting paid off? You said earlier, you know, is government stupid or do they just not get it? You, you know, I don't think they're stupid and, and I don't think they don't get it. But I think there's something else to play over here because it doesn't make sense politically. It doesn't make sense because we know how this story ends. You know, it's to give a COVID analogy. Don't wear a mask. Keep separate six feet. We know how it ends. Case yeah. counts go up. We know that the Chinese are going to exploit us sometime in the near future. We know yeah. that uh, these things are going to happen. So is this within CSIS? Like under the U.S. with the way he dealt with Russia, it was almost as if he was an agent of the Russians. Do the intelligence communities of the different countries look at the leaders and if the leaders are corrupted or what the what the corrupt points are um a couple of years ago there was a famous case this is late 2000s early 2010s i remember the um the director of CSIS was talking about a um was an mp or i forget who it was somewhere in in ontario i believe it was or maybe it was bc uh an mp or mpp of chinese descent 
and he said, you know, we, we're pretty, we're pretty categorical that we think this person's being influenced by the Chinese government. Well, when that hit the fan, I recall the reaction. How dare you accuse a Canadian politician of being in the back pocket of the Chinese? How dare you name this person? How dare you accuse a Canadian of betraying his country? And so um, the director of the time, which was Dick, uh, Dick Fadden, was roundly ignored. In fact, there were calls for him to be fired because he pointed out what, what our investigations had shown. Now, you know, do we actually investigate these people? No, we don't, not to the best of my knowledge, but if in the course of a legitimate investigation, so you, if, you know, if you're following, for example, a, a Russian intelligence officer or a Chinese one, and you find out that, oh, by the way, his number one client happens to have, you know, be an MP or, or a minister of the crown, well, yeah, you're going to follow up on that, right? But there was, a, there was anger that CSIS would, would intimate, suggest that a Canadian could be in the pay of the that. Chinese. I do remember so that in the news. That, They're all over you. That, that was the reaction. Yeah. It's, it's disappointing because, as you said, that uh, even though there haven't been overt acts of terrorism in Canada in a big sort of way since 9-11, the intelligence officials at CSIS, RCMP, different law enforcement agencies are really working behind the scenes, and people don't know how hard they're working. But the problem is government is not taking advantage of the product being produced. There's an agenda that no matter what you find, there, it's not going to interrupt the agenda. And that's a little bit disconcerting, isn't it? It's, a little bit, it's it going to be a little bit frustrating also when you see what the risk and threats are, and it doesn't resonate with anyone that has to take it to the next level. Look, at, I, I'm the last person that says that you know we should live in fear, that we should you know be afraid to leave our houses in the morning, or that we should suspect everyone from acting against our best interests. I don't want to live in a world like that. I'm sure you don't either. But we are very fortunate here in Canada. Um, we don't have the problems, let's say, of the Afghans do, or the Somalis, or the Nigerians, or whatever. And yet, that doesn't mean we're immune from threats or immune from dangers. So when the very services that are being paid to identify these things before the fact mm-hmm. and to advise, I mean, you know, CSIS's mandate, it's right in the, in the CSIS Act, is to advise. CSIS has no powers of arrest. No. CSIS has no powers of doing anything. It advises. You know, governments can choose to take the advice or ignore the advice. And my, my experience is largely it's ignored. So the question that becomes, why bother having a security service if you're not going to take the advice they give you? As I was preparing for this, Phil, I was, I was going to ask you a question and basically say, you know, I, I don't understand the naivety of, of Canadians in general. Even through, you know, Brian and I both work in the private sector dealing with our, our, our employers, trying to sell them on the possibility, just the possibility that there could be uh, a terrorist attack, that there was some risk. It, it, it was just a head in the sand and it just never yeah. happens. They won't even acknowledge it. And then I started tallying up the events that sort of just came to mind. I didn't do any research yeah. online. just said, you know, let me just tally some up and I'll send them your way so you know which, what I'm going to ask. And you start thinking about Air India, yeah. the FLQ. You talk about the Halifax shooting, the Alberta shooting, the yeah. shooting on uh, Ottawa on, on the hill there. And you start to realize, well, you know, I came up with about 15 just yeah. off the top of my head. And I'm yeah. thinking, we can't yeah. even pretend that it never happened. It does happen. So why are we yeah. so resistant to accepting the fact that the risk is there? Because books like this hadn't been written before that summarize it. You know, you know, I'm glad, look, you raised Air India because I was, I was at CSC when Air India happened. And what was fascinating was Brian Mulroney was the prime minister at the time. And I don't know what you think about Brian Mulroney. It doesn't really matter. His first act was to express condolences to the Prime Minister of India for the attack. Despite the fact that all 329 people were either Canadian or residents of Canada or visitors to Canada. In other words, even the government at the time, and a conservative government, which one would think in theory would be a little more amenable to security services versus a liberal government, let alone an NDP government. His first reaction was to say, we're sorry that India had to suffer this. It was an act of terrorism completely planned and executed from within Canada. Yeah. India had, well, it's not they have nothing to do with this because the, 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 the whole reason for the attack was, oh, you know, the desire for a Sikh homeland and the right. called Khalistan and the Punjab. But the point remains is that there were Canadians behind the attack and Canadians were the victims. And yet the prime minister chose to, put, to, to express condolences to India. Yeah. So what does it tell you? It tells you that there is a denial that terrorism is real, that Canadians can be behind acts of terrorism, uh, and that Canadians can be victims of terrorism. 
even when Canadians go, and then there's been, a, I, I cover in the book as well, um, you know, Canadians have gone abroad to kill people. And I remember a couple of years ago, I was in Bangladesh, I was in Dhaka on a business trip, and I visited a cafe called the Holy Artisan Bakery, which it's moved because on, on July 1st, so Canada Day of 2016, a Canadian from Windsor, Ontario, walked into that cafe with a bunch of his buddies. They took 21 people hostage, of whom they killed. Um, a variety of foreigners, variety of, Bang- variety of Bangladeshis. Eventually, uh, Bangladeshi security forces a few weeks, weeks later found him in his hideout. They killed him. He was from Windsor, Ontario. <laughs> and then because of him, people are dead in Bangladesh. My hometown, London, Ontario. There was an attack in July, or sorry, January of 2013 at an Algerian gas plant called Inaminas. And who were the two main terrorists? Two guys from London, Ontario. And yet, where where's the news on that, right? You know, Canadians are one. I mean, I'm a very, very proud Canadian. I mean, you yeah. know, you, you cut me, I bleed red. It's like the flag. I don't want to be anything else. But the naivete of a lot of Canadians when it comes to bad people doing bad things is really very unfortunate. Again, you don't want to create a climate of fear. You don't want to create a climate whereby people start distrusting people because of their skin color or their religion or their ethnic background. But you've got to have a population that recognizes that these things exist, that they're real, and that, yes, they do happen here as well. Well, you know, one of the challenges for Luke and I uh, as security leaders, both in our old lives working for big corporations and now in our current lives, is really to get the attention of people that these things are serious, not to be scared of, not the most important thing, but they've got to be on the horizon. And I want to talk about your new book, The Peaceable Kingdom. I love that title with a question mark. <laughs> the History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present. I'm just starting to get into it, and I haven't read the whole thing, but I've gone through it. I'm just amazing that we're not as uh, uh, pure and lily white as we thought we were. We have our own history. You, you know, I, and Canadians don't know this. Like my, no. my own daughter, who's going to university, has not learned any of this type of stuff. Maybe that explains why when Luke and I go to this, the, the C-suite of our respective companies and try and say, we got to worry about this and we got to do something about it. Maybe the reason we get blank stares is because they haven't read your book and they have no <laughs> idea of how vulnerable we truly are. It's a, it's a, it's a great point. And thanks, thanks for the plug, <laughs> plug, Brian. You know, again, we, we've talked a lot about the Toronto 18, uh, in our, in our brief conversation. That was 15, 16, 15 years ago this June when they were arrested. If you were to ask 100 random Canadians, who are the Toronto 18, you would get 100 blank stares. For those who had heard of it, oh, those guys, yeah, those wankers, eh, yeah, you know, CSIS over, over, overjudged the threat, the RCP overjudged the threat, they really weren't very serious, you know, and yet we've talked about how, in fact, they had, a, they had three tons of ammonium nitrate, they had three targets, they had three detonators, I mean, this was serious stuff, but it was stopped, but because nothing happened, it wasn't very serious. The whole point in writing the book, uh, in addition to reminding Canadians that, yes, terrorism goes back in our history to, uh, you know, eight months after Confederation in 1867, the first attack being Thomas Darcy McGee, we've never been immune from terrorism, whether it's terrorism committed in Canada by Canadians or outside of Canada by Canadians. But aside from being just a, a dry, you know, historical list of, you know, who, what, where, when and why, the reason I wanted to write the book is I wanted to tell the story from the perspective of the women and men who actually worked in counterterrorism. So I was able to line up 20 to 30 of my former colleagues who worked in CT and counterterrorism with CSIS. I was able to get a guy that, you know, penetrated the FLQ back in the 1960s. Again, FLQ. I don't know if you guys, like, last October was the 50th anniversary of the FLQ. And all the op-ed pieces in places like the Globe and Mail, oh, the poor FLQ. This was a terrible thing by the the old security service. These poor innocent francophones were rounded up. They killed a guy. They, They killed six people in Montreal. They bombed banks. They robbed banks. You know, and they were, they'd still be doing it if the crackdown. Now, we, we could argue if martial law was the right response by the Trudeau government in 1970, but that's a, that's a whole other issue. This was a bunch of homegrown terrorists killing Canadians. And yet there's this complete dismissal. So what I wanted to do really with the book is, is allow the people who worked in counterterrorism to tell their stories. This was what it was like. You know, this is what we had to go through. This was, I mean, I remember the, uh, I talked to one IO, um, intelligence officer at length about the Air India. And, you know, what it was like to try to recruit sources in the Sikh community. You know, how do you gain their trust? Why would they talk to you? You know, and then you had to figure out who was who in the zoo. Who who were the ones in the good wars you could trust? 
who were the ones that actually were supportive of Sikh terrorism and Sikh extremism. So it really was, a, to me, it's a testimony to the dedication of the people that did this. And, you know, as I try to explain to everyone who will listen, when you work for CSIS or the RCMP or law enforcement or whatever it is, you know, you've got one goal and one goal only every day when you go to work. How do I stop bad stuff from happening? What can I do so that people don't die or people are seriously injured? What can I do to prevent communities from being shattered by a, you know, a child kidnapping or a, a van attack, whatever kind of thing? And I really think those stories need to be told because if, if they won't tell them for all kinds of reasons. Some people don't want, you know, don't want the publicity. Others aren't sure what they can get away with. I, you know, I've been doing this for so long now because when I was with CSIS, I did a lot of public presentations. So I've kind of learned what I can and cannot say. And um, to me, I think the greatest testimony to, to this book so far I've had was I provided a copy to, to the service before it was published. Because this one, this is the first of my six books that's actually self-published. And I said, is there anything in here you'd rather I not say? Because I'm, I'm fine. You know, if I'm stepping mm -hmm. over a line or something is a little bit too sensitive, please tell me. They didn't change a comma. Wow. Which means I either have learned how to do it properly or they wanted the story to be told. And so uh, it is the first time. And there haven't been a lot of books written about terrorism in Canada. It's the only one to date, to the best of my knowledge, where the story is being told by the individuals who actually went to work every day to prevent things from blowing up in the morning. We, we had a guest on, a former RCMP investigator, did undercover, did fraud. We met him during the T20 as an intel guy, and he's retired. And he said, and, I, and I'm going to ask if that applies to you, it is very refreshing. He says, I love my career in government. I love my career in the RCMP. But we were somewhat muzzled when we worked in government. And it's very refreshing to be uh, uh, retired and able to uh, speak truth to power, if you will. And, you know, CSIS, you know, I'm, you're, you're a real sharp guy. And you're probably really good at what you do. And you know how to write a book and what's acceptable. But I suspect they probably wanted the story being told and they can't tell it. You know, and I think you really have a responsibility and people like you have a responsibility. We're all on the same team, but yep. I think the story has to be told because there is a story out there. You're right. It's, it's funny you mentioned being muzzled, Brian, because that actually happened to me when I retired from the service in, in 2015. My retirement lasted a total of 14 days. Uh, I, did a I did a trip to Eastern Europe with my, my our best friends. We came back and I started with the, uh, the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police's anti-terrorism section, OPP PATS. They brought me on as an advisor because they were expanding their, their mandate. And um, by the end of the summer, this was, so this was the summer of 2015, by the end of the summer, word got out that I was retired from CSIS. So I'm getting calls from the CBC, from CTV, mm -hmm. from Global saying, you know, we've heard about you and uh, can you comment on X, Y, or Z? It's funny because OPP Pat said, you can't do that. I said, what do you mean yeah. you can't do that? Uh, because you work for the OPP and, and we now have a media person. I said, I'm not commenting on the OPP. I'm commenting on, you still can't do that. I actually had to resign from the OPP Pats wow. because my first book was coming out and they were going to basically forbid me from... And I'm not saying this to, yeah. to cast, cast doubts. I mean, this was the policy of the OPP. We have a designated person that talks to the media and he's not you. I mean, the service... I mean, the RCP has their public relations. Sure. So the service. And, and it's not know, a bad thing. It's probably no. the right thing to do. But you're you not know, bound by that anymore. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm, yeah. The only thing I'm bound by is that if something is still so sensitive, uh, you know, like human source identities that have not been made public, yeah. some have gone public, but if they still um, you know, remain uh, not disclosed, I'm not going to disclose them. Why would I Why would I want to put someone's life in jeopardy who infiltrated a yeah. terrorist cell or a Russian intelligence cell kind of thing? So I, I did this by design. I, I always knew as I was ending my career with the service, first of all, I knew I was going to write a book. I didn't know it was going to be six books, but I knew I was going to write a book. <laughs> and I always knew I wanted to tell, not, tell, not to tell the service's story, but to tell Canadians about what it is we do and why we do it. Because... They weren't telling their own story, and, and those that were chosen and approached to tell the story got it wrong because they, they didn't know what they were talking about. It's the same thing. I mean, if you ask me about neurosurgery, I can't spell neurosurgery. Why, why, why would I weigh in on neurosurgery? And yet a lot of people in this country, and I won't name names, who are being touted as terrorism experts or security experts never spent a nanosecond in the business. Or if they did <laughs> – um, it was so limited as to be of, you know, very, very little use. So I just said, I think Canadians deserve better. I think Canadians deserve to hear exactly what happens and why we do it. I, I, I see that Mr. Cedroni smiling. Well, I think we know some of these experts. I, 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 but I think you know the story I'm about to tell, Brian, as well, because I took an investigative course once, uh, Phil, and 
uh, just to see, uh, you know, it was one of the well-known company, doesn't matter who they were, but it was a legitimate um, investigative course that I took. And on that course was the uh, one of the editors for, I think it was Global News, I can't remember her name, but she took the course to find out what investigators did and, you know, it was good on her to understand. To your point, if you're going to write about something, understand it first. So she was doing that and I said to her, you know, I, I'd really like to have a coffee with you at break. And, and so coffee break, we, we hooked up and I just asked her one question. I said, I'd like to know what your rationale is for determining who an expert is mm. in whatever particular field. You know, we just happen to be talking about security, but in general. And she started laughing and she goes, you know what? We post it up there. If nobody says anything, we're good to go. <laughs> so, wow. I so I sort of lost my respect for that. And she knew exactly what I was talking about because at the time, this uh, particular expert was all over the place. And people who yeah. knew him said, that guy never did those things. Like he was an expert in everything. And yet he only did one particular yeah. piece of security pie. So, you know, to your but, point, there's a lot of BS up there. Well, it's funny you say that because um, I've made it my, it's my practice. It's my um, way of doing things. I will never refer myself as an expert for the simple reason yep. that the term is meaningless. But I have a piece coming out on my website probably next week where I challenge people who call themselves experts. I said, I'm not calling myself, but here's my background. I go through in quite detail what yes. I did through my career, both at CSE and CSIS. And I refuse to be called an expert. So if you're an expert, can does your experience weigh up to mine? Just like, just curious. Just curious. No, the term is meaningless. And it's thrown around by the media. The media is very, very bad at this. And I, I, is it to sell papers? Is it to, is it to get advertisers? I don't know. But when anybody in his dog can become an expert, the, the term the term is it's, it's worse than useless. It's dangerous. Because if people start making decisions based on what they think a so-called expert is saying, I mean, whether you're a, you're a financial expert or a terrorism expert or a, a global warming expert, if all the experts say, sell all your stocks in X, Y, or Z, and these people can't spell stocks, yeah. and you go ahead and sell them and you end up making the wrong decision, are you any further ahead? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, national security is, is not a priority for Canadians, nor should it be. I think we just have to allow the, the people that need to do we allow them the leeway to do their jobs. But for God's sakes, have a minimum of understanding of what's happening out there. So you can just become a better informed Canadian. I mean, no one's no one's no one's asking you to write a book on it or you know, lecture, but just gain a, a, a minimal understanding of it. And if the minimal understanding is coming to you from somebody who can't spell terrorism, boy, we're in a heap of hurt in this country. So, Phil, in your opinion, are Canadian businesses properly prepared are they sensitive to what the risks and threats are or are they sort of living in denial we were talking as i said earlier to an expert in privacy legislation and she was saying that uh, a lot of businesses go through the motions of saying they have privacy policies and protocols but it's just smoke and mirrors in your opinion and i know you you have a consultant firm borealis consulting i believe is yeah the name uh, are you dealing with business leaders yep. and, and or is it just government no, it's, it's business, private sector as well. In fact, I, I had one client for about three years where I was providing them with weekly updates on, on what they need to worry about. I think a lot of it's lip service. Now, again, uh, you know, the other side of the coin is that Canada is a relatively safe country. Relatively safe. I mean, we're not Afghanistan. We're not even England for that matter, or Germany or France. So they've gotten away with it in that they don't have to spend a lot of time and money devoted to this because not a lot happens. The problem is, is that something may happen one day. I'm not going to say it will happen. I don't, I don't, have, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. But it seems to me that there should be a minimum amount of investment into understanding the risks in the same way that, you know, cyber attacks. I mean, what are the chances your company will be subject to a cyber attack? Probably pretty high, you know, some kind of a ransomware or whatever kind of thing. I'm guessing that most companies, is it's in their vested interest to invest in that kind of thing. And so why wouldn't they do the same thing for security? I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking them to create Fort Knox. Yeah. You know, but a minimum amount of knowledge, I do a lot with insider threat. Like, you know, what are the signs that one of your staff is going to do X, Y, or Z? Yeah. No, I can't speak to the cyber side. It's not, but you know, I can give you pretty categorically if one of your employees is going down this terrible term we use, the pathway to radicalization of violence. I can tell you what those signs are. Because I dealt with it for, for 15 years. I wrote, I wrote a whole book on it, my very first book. And so why wouldn't you want that knowledge? Because at the end of the day, two things can happen. One is that your employee disappears and ends up killing people across the street or in a different country. 
And everyone says, oh, Bell Canada's Phil Gursky killed 15 people. Or, worse than that, Bell Canada's Phil Gursky went postal. One kind of mixed metaphor there. Um, <laughs> went postal one morning in the cafeteria and killed 15 Bell employees because of X, Y, or Z, and he had been radicalized to violence. So, you know, it's not as if the, the training is complicated. It's like a day. And, you know, if you're working for the company, either in, in, in uh, HR or internal security for those that have that kind of thing, just just educate yourself. It's not well, rocket science. We we have always taken, Luke and I, and, and certainly myself as a consultant on dealing with clients, uh, the concept of duty of care. It's a, yeah. it's a legal concept under tort law. And say, look, you've got a duty of care obligation to make sure we have a safe and secure environment for people, asset, business process, what have you. And what duty of care means is, and I'm very specific, saying that if the threat is foreseeable and consequential, even though it doesn't happen, but it's foreseeable, you have a legal obligation to be yeah. prepared. And I would say, to your point, you say Canada's a safe com- uh, country, and I agree. And we have an enviable record of safety and effect- effective policing and intelligence. But it is foreseeable and reasonable to think yeah. an attack can happen. Yeah. And to uh, stand up your protection after the attack is under, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I think yeah. it would be a failure or breach of your duty of care. And I think that's the message we give clients. Yeah. You got to think about these things. What was that? that? I mean, once the horse is up the barn, I mean, you can't get it back in, right? And I, I think that people probably overestimate how complicated and how expensive it's going to be. And that's why they don't do it. Or they're just, if there's a one in a million chance, I'm going to take that one in a million chance. But right. as you said, there's a duty to care. And you prepare yourself for all kinds of other things. Why wouldn't you do the same thing with this? Right. Now, maybe they've been, you know, burned badly in the past where they hired someone who was a so called expert that didn't know what they're talking about. And they didn't get the product they wanted, but that's just doing your homework better. I mean, yeah. you just you just ensure the person you're bringing in, whether it's on cyber or terrorism or intelligence practice, whatever, you you vet them. You look into, okay, who is this person? They claim to be an expert in this. Why are they an expert? Who calls them an expert? What have they written? What have they done? What have they experienced? And it just, to me, I think you're, you use the term too. It's just, it's just due diligence, Brian. That's yeah. all it is. And I think that every corporation of a certain size should, should have these lessons. And it, it, it shouldn't even be a question. Let's just get it done. I mean, corporations offer internal training all the time. Good Lord. It seems now that, if, I don't know what's happening in the private sector, but in the public sector, you know, it's all about systemic racism. Everyone's going to have a course yeah. in systemic racism. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. I, I, no problem with that. You know, uh, was it four armed is four war? Four armed is four armed. I, I, I get that. I have no problem with that. But where are the courses on, you know, insider threat? Where are the courses on cybersecurity? Where are the courses on... So, you know, you'll, you'll spend, you know, $100,000 on systemic racism and you won't spend $10,000 on insider threat. It'll make a lot of sense to me. Phil, before we close off, because we, we're up on the hour and uh, we don't want to keep them too long, although I'd love to continue the discussion over a beer. I could talk about this all day. But uh, I did want to finish off the last thought that you and Brian were, were talking about there in terms of the business. What we haven't talked about is what's coming. And, uh, you know, do you see a role or do you see trends already in terms of how they're leveraging technology? And I'm not talking about attacks. Like to me, my, my, my experience, what I've read about the uh, terrorists in particular, they're always going to stick to the most tried and, and tested yeah. technology. They're not going to go out and buy drones and start delivering packages yeah. via air when yeah. they can deliver by a truck because they know the truck's going to get there. So yeah. really, I'm talking about maybe, you know, social media. How are they recruiting? Yeah. Are they leveraging new technologies to facilitate terrorist activity in the future? How are they going to do that? Wow, what, what, what a great last question. We actually do know, <laughs> though, that ISIS was ISIS now uses drones in Iraq and Syria, so they've mastered that technology. I, I, I think, Luke, the, the, the beauty if you're a terrorist is, is the simplicity of terrorism. Like, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. There's all this big concern about what if they get a nuke? What if they develop a chemical weapon? What if they develop, you know, what the, what the uh, Aungshun Rikyo did in the Tokyo subway in 95, right, with Sarin? Sarin, yes. You know, that, that's, that's, yeah, great. But any idiot can carry out an act of terrorism because all it takes is a, a van, a knife, a baseball bat. I mean, good God, we saw an ISIS wannabe in a Canadian tire in the summer of 2018 with a golf club. Okay? <laughs> now, she wasn't very effective. <laughs> still, that's the point. Most terrorists aren't rocket scientists. They're not the sharpest p- pencils in the box, but they don't have to be. The other thing that worries me, I think, is is just the ubiquity of social media and uh, our, our our connections. I mean, everything's connected now. Right? Your fridge, for Christ's sake, is connected to the internet. Why? I have no idea. <laughs> like I, I, hey, I, you know, I've been on this planet for sixty years, and I've gotten I've gotten here so far without my fridge, you know, communicating with the internet. 
I think the opportunities for intrusion, the opportunities for things like ransomware, which is not necessarily terrorist related, uh, are the to worry about. But you know, getting back to the main topic, I, I think from a terrorism perspective, my my humble views, not predictions, are that you're going to see more of the same um, for the foreseeable future. So meaning that I mean, Islamist terrorism has been the soup du jour now for the better part of four decades. It's not going away. In fact, if anything, it's strengthening in many parts of the world. Yes, the far right's there. Where it goes, hard to tell. The far right's been around for a long time, too. So are they going to peak? Who knows? The thing that no one talks about is the far left. And, you know, if, if global warming, um, which we know is real, if, if people perceive that, that governments aren't caring about climate change, about, you know, energy policies, you're going to see, a, I'm predicting, no, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating you might see a rise in people deciding to use violence to make their point. So, no, I'm not going to say that Greta Thunberg is going to become a terrorist tomorrow. <laughs> but there'll be people, people are going to say, you know, enough's enough. And I remember a quote, this was years ago, and I forget where I put it in one of my books, where they interviewed this Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhist. And basically, you know, what he was saying, I'll, I'll translate loosely, maybe if we start blowing shit up, people start looking at our cause. So if, and when you're convinced that nobody's listening to you, but if people start dying, or buildings start blowing up, you're going to get some attention, then you opt for that option. And uh, that's my worry, is that terrorism as, as a phenomenon will never be an existential threat. Never, unless you happen to live in Afghanistan, where it is an existential threat. When the, when the Americans withdraw and the Taliban takes over, it'll, res it'll resort to terrorism. That, that's 100%. That's not, that's not a prediction. That's a guarantee. Everywhere else, terrorism is, is inconvenience. It's a blip. But it gets a dis disordered amount of attention because of 9-11. No 9-11? You would have this conversation without 9-11. It's as simple you know, as that. I'm, I'm a Quebecer a little bit older than you, and I remember the FLQ uh, years really, really well in Quebec. And I lived through them, and they were scary times. You can look back today and say, well, it was an overreaction. It was just a, a ragtag group of guys. But that's not what we thought at the time. No. Hindsight is 2020. But what you just said was really interesting because CTV on the anniversary interviewed – uh, one of the uh, terrorists that was part of the cell, I think that kidnapped Cross, if I'm not mistaken. And he basically said, and it was interesting how intelligent and articulate this guy was. It was a French interview, but he essentially said that we didn't want to destroy Canada. We didn't want to kill people, but we needed to do something to get their, their attention. And that, that's exactly what you just said. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Whatever yeah. it's going to take. And if we can get your attention by giving you a chocolate donut, that's great, but if we got to yeah. cut your head off, we'll do that as well. Yeah. And he well, said they did it reluctantly. They didn't. Yeah. They, they were not happy that uh, Pierre Laporte died, but it was yeah. necessary. Yeah. Bottom line is, is that you know, an offense like terrorism is a very, very infrequent occurrence in most of the world. So, so in this book, I, I outline all the deaths from terrorism in Canada since Confederation, and it's somewhere around 20. 20 people, and that's only if you include Manassian, which I don't include. Actually, the, the, the answer is closer to 10. 10 people have died in Canada in 153 years. You do the math. That's one every, you know, decade and a half dies from terrorism. So no, it's not an existential threat. It's not even a serious threat for most of the time. But what I'm advising readers and Canadians to accept is that this is why we have a CSIS. This is why we have the RCMP. This is why we have the OPP PATS. This is why we have these people that are trained to identify this stuff and stop it before it's happening. Let them do their jobs. Recognize that it's out there and just get the hell out of their way. And stop criticizing them all the time when they arrest people. Oh, they, they arrested the wrong guy. Well, how the hell do you know? Were you, were you part of the investigation? Right? But were the news media the said so. Yeah, I know. I know. Anyway, well, guys. Yeah, it was, on that it, note, no. <laughs> that was a great summary. Phil, really appreciated your time today. It certainly lived up to what I, my expectations were. And uh, really happy to actually talk with you about it um, in person. where We haven't had that chance well, in the past. Thank you, guys. I mean, it's great talking to you. Uh, you know, it's always great to talk to people who understand what's going on here. And uh, and kudos to you guys for for putting these types of uh, videos out. I mean, if you're not going to do it and I'm not going to do it, someone who does it ain't going to have the background and the understanding. So uh, my congratulations to you guys on this initiative. Brian, you want to say goodbye? Yeah, I do. And I just want to – Luke, don't worry. I'm not going to start the conversation again. <laughs> but, but I do want to uh, ask, Phil, can you just tell us the Peaceful Kingdom, uh, Peaceable yeah. Kingdom, question yeah. mark? It looks like a great book. Where do we get it? Okay, I, I owe you $5 for saying that, Brian. Um, <laughs> no, um, 
This was interestingly, this is the first book of mine. It's the sixth book, but it's the first one that was self-published. And, you know, long story short, I couldn't get any Canadian publisher to care. And I thought, okay, wait, I just told you I spent 15 years in counterterrorism. I'm the author of five peer-reviewed books published by academic publishers in the United States. And I got silence. Was it because of COVID? I have no idea. So I said, screw it. And I looked into self-publishing and it was actually easier than I thought. And instead of being a year in the making, it was like, Two weeks in the making. So uh, it's self-published. And so they have to go to my website, borealisthreatenedrisk.com is the website. There's a link there on how to order it. And essentially, um, you know, an e-transfer or PayPal, whatever. As soon as I get the money, it's only $25 Canadian plus $5 shipping and handling in Canada, uh, 15 outside of Canada. And uh, once I get the transfer, you get a signed copy in the mail whenever Canada Post gets around to it. <laughs> That's excellent. We're gonna uh, we're gonna put that on our LinkedIn page, and we'll do some promotion of it also because I think it's an important work. You write very well. It's an interesting read, and I really urge anyone that's in the business community or the security community should read it. It's not a hard read, and it will just open your eyes. Well, thanks very much, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Phil. And again, Peaceable Kingdom, get it. Uh, Borealis Threat and Risk is the site. And uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll tune in next time. Bye bye. Bye, everyone.